Good morning. Uh, we will be reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 29. I will read it in English and my mother in Spanish. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. <clears throat> Dios les bendiga. Hablé chu. Voy a leer en el Romanos 8:29. Dice así en nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. Amén. Porque a los que antes conoció también los desprestinó, para que fuesen hechos conforme a la imagen de su Hijo, para que él sea el primogénito entre muchos hermanos. Amén. Amen. All right. May I help you down? Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're thank so you, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. God bless you. Uh huh. Thank you. Hey. Good morning. I would like to preach this morning in Spanish. But I don't know Spanish. I'm going to go with the language I know. How's that? English. English. So good to be with you today uh, here at, uh, at uh, Bethel Church Gary. I preached first service Bethel Church Crown Point this morning. Jumped in a car, came up here. And uh, actually, I'm giving a different message in this service than I gave in the first service this morning, which I don't know if I've ever done that before. And afterwards, you can tell me whether I should ever do it again. Uh, but yes, my name's Steve DeWitt, and if we haven't met before, um, I'd be delighted to meet you after the service, and I have uh, had the privilege of serving as an elder and as a, a pastor, pastor for 22 years almost here at Bethel Church, and uh, so happy with the leadership that Pastor Dexter is giving here to the Gary campus, and I just want to say that. And we all know where that comes from. His wife, Paige, also in the front row. Although you appear to be fighting, I'd encourage you to reconcile with each other. I also want to say how thankful I am for our lead elders, um, and Chad Clark is one of them. And uh, you have a great group of elders that love the campus and... Uh, are very, very interested in what God is doing here, and so delighted in what God's doing here. And I, uh, I also uh, delighted to have uh, uh, Chris on the team here. I met Chris a few months ago, and so I want to acknowledge uh, Chris as well. Chris, you're not allowed to clap for yourself. It's awkward, I know. I didn't know what to do myself earlier, but because you want it to sound loud, but you can't, you can't do it yourself, so... Anyway, uh, okay, all right. So today I'm going to talk with you about uh, some more difficult doctrines in the Bible. You know, we have a pool here. A, we have a, the shape of a pool here. <laughs> There's no water in it. Maybe some of you have seen uh, the pool here. And if you have, it's actually a little bit of a, uh, it's sort of scary actually to go uh, to the pool. 
Because when there's no water in the pool, you realize that there is a, there's a shallow end, which you still wouldn't want to fall in the shallow end. But then you look over to the deep end and you realize, you kind of peer over the edge, you don't want to accidentally fall in the deep end where, there, where there's no water. And doctrinally speaking, Romans is taking us now to the deeper end of the pool. We are moving into uh, the areas that are over our heads and truly beyond our understanding. But we shouldn't be that surprised because Paul now, by the Holy Spirit and with wisdom that God gave him, is explaining in human terms how the infinite divine mind purposed to take sinners and to turn them into saints, to take sinners and to land them in heaven, to take sinners and to transform them so that they look like somebody else, which is where I'm going to go today in my message. But we are definitely moving to the deeper end of the pool. And if you, are, if you walk out of here today and you're like, wow, there was things there I didn't understand, that doesn't necessarily mean I haven't preached it well. Now, it might mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I haven't preached it well. It's an indication maybe that it has been preached, taught well, and to acknowledge that God's ways are above our ways. And God's, things are, God's uh, purposes are beyond our knowing and understanding. And uh, that's what causes us to bow down and to worship, to worship him. But we are here in Romans chapter 8, and what a wonderful chapter this is. It has been a, just a delight to, uh, to teach through it, and we're going to be in it through much of June. Romans 8, our passage today, introduces three concepts that are the deeper into the pool. Foreknowledge, predestination, and conforming us to the likeness of Christ, Christ's likeness. And we're going to touch briefly in the first two, and then uh, and we're going to do that because Romans 9 is going to be like the deep dive in the deep end of the pool, and I'll just let Dexter figure that out. <laughs> so if it feels like I'm kicking the can down the road to let Dexter worry about it, that's exactly what I'm doing. He'll be great with it. It'll be fine. He'll totally understand it when he's done. Because today I want to focus mostly on God's good purpose of conforming us to the likeness of his precious son, Jesus Christ. So here's the text, Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless his word to us today. Well, I think Romans 8.28 should go down as one of your favorite verses in the Bible. We've spent a couple weeks on Romans 8.28, and it just doesn't get any better than Romans 8.28, except for maybe Romans 8.32, which is coming perhaps my favorite verse in the whole Bible. But we see in verse 828 that those who are called according to his purpose, called according to his purpose. And that concept of calling, which Dexter's going to get into more next week, I think, is one of these things that's a little bit of a mind bender because clearly the call of God goes to all sinners. Jesus said, come unto me all who are, you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we know that the gospel is for every person. It doesn't matter your creed, it doesn't matter your color, it doesn't matter your background or your age, that Jesus 
is offered to any sinner who will turn from their sins and trust in Christ. They will be saved. And that is the call of God. It's called the general call of God. But that's not the call that we find here in this passage. This call is the call according to his purpose. This is what is known as the effectual call of God. This is the work of God where he moves in the heart of the sinner and draws them and summons them to faith. If you want a picture of it, think of Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. There he is. Lazarus is dead. And, uh, and, and Jesus stands at the edge of that, of that grave, and what does he say? Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? There in that grave, Lazarus, a dead man, suddenly becomes alive. How did that happen? Because when you are the son of God, whatever you call happens, right? This is, what did God do into the abyss of nothingness? He said, let there be light. And what was there? Light, right away. That's the way it is with God. When God calls, his call creates the very thing that he purposes, The call of God. One of my friends, uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, longtime pastor at Moody Church, I heard him tell the story of how he was teaching preaching at a school up in Chicago. And to help the, the young men learn about preaching, he said, all right, I want all of you to put a sermon together, and we're going to go in a van on a field trip. And so all the guys got in the van, they went and they drove to a local cemetery. And uh, Dr. Lutzer said, all right, everybody get out. I want you to pick, pick a grave and I want you to preach your sermon. And they did it. They went down there, they, and there they preached in their sermon at the empty grave. They all get back in the van, and he says, okay, what's the point? And of course, what's the point? That all the preaching in the world, all of the wisdom of the world, all the, the, the music and the worship in the world doesn't create spiritual life. My words are human right now. This, th there's no power humanly in what I am saying. But when it is infused with the power of God, when it, is, it, when it is used in the call of God, it creates the very thing that God purposes, okay? So you can know when you became a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, you can know that when you turned in faith to Christ, that was the work of God in your life. That was not you being smart, you sort of, you know, seeing it. It was God working in your life. And that is the call, the effectual call of God. Every person who is saved has been called by God. Called according to his purpose. And that's the point here in this passage is that salvation is of God. It is according to the plan and the purpose of God. And we shouldn't be surprised that God is doing everything in history according to a plan and a purpose. I mean, everything we do is like that. If you, if you build a house, you know, the builder doesn't show up and you say, hey, what are you going to build? And, and he says, I don't know. I'm going to sort of figure it out as I go. No, you say, no, you're fired. I don't want you to build this house. Why? Because when you build a house, you've got to have a set of plans. Way more complex than building a house is turning a sinner into a saint. And we shouldn't be surprised that God has a plan for how he's doing it. And everything is working out according to the purpose of that plan. So here we are now in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The verse begins with the word for, and so it's just flowing right out of verse 28. Those whom he foreknew are referred to in verse 28 as those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
These are not three different groups of people, like the people that are called and the people that are predestined and the people that God foreknew. It is three different ways of describing the same people. These are the people of God. These are the genuine Christians. These are, these are the elect, the church. All these are words in the New Testament describing the same people. But how do people become the people of God? How does God change their status? How do they move from under the wrath of God, Romans 1, to under the grace of God, Romans 6. Well, here we have it before us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I think this is the text next week for you, uh, Dexter. I'm not going to steal your thunder. But to see in this that there is a progression. Like, let's say that you did build that house. And after it was all done, you said to him, hey, tell me, how did you do it? He might say this, well, we started with plans, and according to those plans, we dug a hole, and then we put in a foundation, and we built a house, and after we built the house, we had completed the, the house. What was it? The plan became a reality, and that's what Romans 8 is explaining, that God had a plan, God had a purpose, and all the things that we see, including his work, the work of Jesus on the cross, is part and parcel of God's plan and purpose to save sinners, and to glorify his son. Which brings us back to these three concepts, foreknowledge, predestination, and Christ-likeness. Let's just talk briefly about foreknowledge. Okay, foreknowledge. Again, there it says, for those whom he foreknew. This is one of these words that means like what it sounds. Okay, foreknow, to know something beforehand. Okay, to know something beforehand. We know things afterhand. Like, we don't know anything beforehand, really, really know anything beforehand. We know things after they happen. Happen. We meet people and we say, we know them. How? Because I met them. I know them. Maybe I'll meet you after the service. I'll say, hey, now I know you. You know me. This is the way that we, that we work. If, if somebody said that they know somebody before they meet them, we would say that you're a liar or you're delusional. So how is God not a liar and not delusional to say that he knew us before we existed. Well, this is how. God created time. God created time. God transcends time. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Everything that is, was, and will be is a present now to God. So he does not relate to time like we do, where we just have these minutes and seconds and during the sermon, hours, but you promised me, Dexter, you said, go as long as you want. The people love it. Amen. Amen. But God doesn't operate in minutes, seconds, days, months, years. He transcends time. So what does it mean, foreknowledge, to know somebody beforehand? Here's what it means, and we trust our, uh, one of our favorite theologians, Wayne Grudem. He says this, foreknowledge, those whom long ago God thought of in a saving relationship to himself. Those that long ago God began thinking about in terms of a saving relationship to himself. Think about this with me. Before time began, long before there were angels and demons, long before there was a universe, what foreknowledge tells us is way back then God began thinking about in terms of a saving, loving relationship all of those that he was going to someday redeem. What does that tell us? 
God loves us. And his love is not a circumstantial love. It's not a love based on my performance today. God began to love me before I even existed. He knew me even back then. The foreknowledge of God. When we think about God, one of the hard things for us is that in the deep end of the pool here is to realize that God doesn't learn anything. You know, we go to school. Kids, don't you love going to school? We got any kids going to school? Don't you, here in front row, love, don't you love going to school? Can I get an amen? Silence. But we go to school and we learn things that we didn't know before. For God, there is no such thing as learning. Why? Does God know everything? Simple answer is yes, God knows everything. Does that include everything that's already happened? Yes. Does that include what's happening today? Yes. Does that include everything that ever will happen in all of human history and eternity future? Yes. All of that he already knows. So is it so hard to understand that God in eternity past foreknew those who he was going to save? That's what foreknowledge means. Long ago he began to love us. God's relationship to things is so different than us. St. Augustine said it this way, we know things because they are, but things are because God knows them. We know things because they are, but things are because God knows them. Notice also that it is whom, for those whom he foreknew. In other words, this is relational. This is God thinking of people, thinking of us. It's not it. God didn't foreknow our faith. He foreknew our, he knew us as people. This means that this is relationship. This is God foreknowing, forethinking, foreloving. What a wonderful promise this is. This is not a perfect analogy, but we, we my wife and I, we loved our daughters before we met them. Like from the moment, the little pregnancy, actually, I'll tell you the story. My wife and I got married, and we went on our honeymoon, and shortly after the honeymoon, she had her first appointment at the doctor. And so we, we went to the, the appointment, they showed us in this room, and we were sitting there. They had a few little things with her before that. We're just sitting there. It was just to establish care. She moved here from Kansas City. Well, the nurse... Uh, uh, comes in and she closes the door behind her and she goes, well, it's positive. We said, what's positive? She says, you're pregnant. What? <laughs> like, you know, now when you're married, you can't be that surprised. But we were still surprised, like, really? I mean, like the whole, like the tectonic plates under my feet move. You parents know what this is like when you all of a sudden you realize there's a baby on the way. But here's what I'm telling you. From that moment, we began to love my daughter. Hadn't met her yet. Didn't know what her name was going to be. Didn't know what her color of hair was going to be. Didn't know this, that, and the other. But we already started loving her. We loved her before we knew her. And in a much more dramatic sense, God loved us before we even existed. Before we even were a, that little sparkle in our, our, our mama's eye, God began to love us. Before he created the universe, he loved you. Amen. Which leads to the second concept here, which is predestination. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor over the many years I have had people that have asked me this question. They will say, do you believe in predestination? Now, I don't remember anybody by name or by face, and so if you did this, I'm not talking about you. But can I just say, (laughs) that is one of the most biblically ignorant questions that you could possibly ask. Why? Because it's in the Bible. We don't have the option of whether we believe it or not. Now, how we define it, therein lies the challenge. But you can't not believe in predestination. In fact, I heard a, a, a lecture by R.C. Sproul, the title of which on predestination was, Everybody Believes This Doctrine. And that was the, basically his point. is You can't escape this. There's no getting around it. It's in the Bible, not in one place, in multiple places, is predestination. So what is predestination? Well, predestination, again, is a word that means like it sounds. It is to pre-beforehand destinate, destination. So, for example, anytime you go on a trip, you are predestinating. You, nowadays, back in the day, you'd get your map out and figure out how you're going to get there. But these days, we, modern man and women, we don't have to do that. We just pull out our phones. You type in, I want to go to, and you type in wherever you're going to go. And the phone GPSs you to where you got to go, right? What have you done? You have predestinated. You are saying, I am here, but my destination is there. And biblically, this doctrine teaches that not only in, in eternity past did God foreknow those with whom he was going to enter a saving, loving relationship with, but that in eternity past, God also predestinated ultimate destinies. And this is a hard doctrine, and that's why Pastor Dexter is going to explain it fully later on. (laughs) So you stay tuned for that, because I'm going to move on to the, the real thing I want to talk about today, which is the third purpose we find in this verse, and that is Christ likeness. Christ likeness. We are predestined to be blank. Now, if you ask the average Christian, they would say saved or forgiven or going to heaven or eternal life. What is God predestinating me? Those things. Or maybe we go back to Romans 8, 28. What is the good that God is working all things together for? In our mind, we think my happiness, my health, my wealth, my uh, perfectly obedient children, my wonderful vocation, my ongoing experience of happiness day after day for the rest of my life. I am, that's what I'm thinking is the good God's working everything together for. Most of us would say, fill in the blank with one of those things, I'm happy about it. And yet what does God do here? Does he kind of, what is this? He, he sort of baits and switches us, doesn't he? Because you would expect that he would say that he's going to make me happy forever. But no, what is God predestining us towards? Conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? And by the way, are you disappointed? Well, first of all, the Son is Jesus. Conformed to the likeness of his Son. Likeness there is the Greek word for icon or image. This is like portrait. Okay, so if, if, uh, if you have, if somebody draws a portrait of, of you, this, they're making on the canvas something that looks like you. 
You might remember some years ago, Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, they had like her 90th uh, uh, year portrait done, the official royal portrait. And they threw the big gala and all of that, and they had the portrait under, you know, under a, a cloth, and she had posed for it, but she hadn't seen it yet. And they had the big unveiling of the new portrait. And so they unveil it, and you could see the look on her face when she saw her portrait. She was like, It's never been seen again, that portrait. Nowhere to be found. The queen didn't like it. Portraits are pictures made to resemble someone else. Now, Chris, during the service, came up to me and he said, and you can verify that this is true just moments ago, he said, hey, yesterday, where were you, were you at Red Robin? I said, no, I wasn't at Red Robin. He goes, there was somebody that looked just like you there. Okay. Now, maybe you're familiar with what uh, contemporarily we call that. Are you from, uh, familiar with the term doppelganger? Doppelganger. Let's say that together, class. Doppelganger. A doppelganger is that other person that you strangely look like. Like, I've often thought that Dexter looks like LeBron James. I don't know why, but I have often thought that. Because, as a, and I'll tell you, as a pastor, you tend to be, you know, you're more in the spotlight. People are looking at your face. So over the years, I ha there's a doppelganger that I, like, I hear this all the time, who I look like over and over, my doppelganger. And so I'm just going to settle the matter forever. So if you show the slide with my picture, okay, there I am. Here's my doppelganger, apparently. So... <laughs> I can't tell you how often people ask me, are you Chris Hemsworth? Are you? And I guarantee in Hollywood, he's hearing all the time people saying, you look a lot like Steve DeWitt. Has anybody ever told you that? So, and, and I will tell you, he and I have never been seen together in the same room. So maybe there is a possibility of some doppelganging going on there. All right, take it down. They won't look at me anymore. So what am I doing here? I'm wanting to see that there is value, even in our culture, of resembling somebody else, whether that be a portrait, a high-value portrait, or whether that be even in culture, how much of our culture is driven by people who are obsessing about looking like whoever the it person is at the time. So somebody becomes popular, the way they wear their hair, and all of a sudden all the young people are wearing their hair. And whatever clothes they're wearing, now the stores are filled with those particular clothes. And whatever the way they talk, their little vernacular, the little, the little cool word that now means that you're sort of in and hip, now everybody's trying to use that word over and over again. We are a culture that, that is obsessed with looking like, uh, resembling people that we think are more important than us. Go to a Bears game. 40,000 men, grown men at a Bears game wearing the jersey of somebody whose name is not theirs on the back of it. Do you realize in any other time of human history that would be viewed as silly, like a grown man wearing another man's clothes? This is, you know. But at Bears Stadium, this is viewed as cool. It'll cost you 125 bucks. 
I'm trying to help you see the way that we so much want to be like someone who's more important than us. What is it? It's a derived identity. It's a derived value. I am seeing that person as being so important that I want to be like him or her. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Christian, is this good news? I would say to you that if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, the news that God, prior to creating the world, had set in motion plans to make you just like him, could be not, there's no better news than that. Such good news. And to realize that our identity is in Christ and is derived from him. That our worth and value is in a kind of relationship derived from being in Christ. In fact, the greater your view of Jesus, the better news it will be that God is going to make you into his likeness. And I would say this to you as well. If that doesn't seem exciting, are you sure Jesus is your Savior? Like, really? Can Jesus be your Savior? And you not be excited about God working to make you into his likeness? Young people, who are you trying to be like? Who do you got hanging on the wall of your bedroom? Locker? Who are you trying to be like so much, wanting to be like? Could I say to you, they all fall short of Jesus. God is wanting through the gospel and through salvation to make you into the likeness of his own son who is the most wonderful and glorious person who has ever lived. I just think this is good news. And it should be good news for us. Now you might be confused today because you, you maybe have read other verses that say that it's God's will, for example, to make us sanctified. Or it is God's will that we be holy or things like this. And you're like, now Pastor Steve's coming along and saying, actually, what God is wanting to do is to conform me to the likeness of Jesus. And what I want you to realize is that these are all synonyms. These are all the same thing. It's you know, sanctification equals holiness equals Christ-likeness. These are all the same thing. What does it mean to be conformed to the likeness of Christ? It means that the attitudes of Jesus, the actions, the heart the willing obedience, the love of God, these and so many other things that are exemplified in the life of Jesus, that these are the core values that God is forming in our own hearts. And we are going to be our own version of, of, of Jesus in that sense. God doesn't want everybody here to be the same exactly. But that same core, that same heart, God is forming in our lives. So, how do we conform to the likeness of Christ? It's one thing to know what it is, but how do we conform to the likeness of Christ? And our time is fleeting, but I'm going to give you one verse, a different verse that explains it, I think, very well. Here's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Through the gospel and by the Spirit, the Bible says that the the scales fall off of our eyes and we see and behold and discern in Jesus somebody so different, so wonderful, so saving. And I, in my heart, place my hope and trust for salvation in what Jesus did dying on the cross for my sins. And in that whole experience, I begin to behold the glory of the Lord. I behold him as wonderful and beautiful and worthy of me taking up the same cross and following him. I become a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus who admires Christ and sees him as the most wonderful, the most glorious person that has ever lived and is living today. We perceive in him a divine glory and we place in him all of our eternal hope. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And the Christian life, then, is an ongoing experience of beholding the glory of the Lord, primarily through the Scriptures, but also through the community of faith as we see God working in other people's lives. In my own life, as I look back and I see bondages in my life that I've overcome by the power of God, I see trials in my life that God was faithful and brought me through. I see the love of God ongoingly displayed in my life. I see all of that, and I'm in that I am beholding the glory of the Lord. And the verse says that as I behold the glory of the Lord, I am increasingly being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. That's sanctification. That's growing as a Christian. And this is God's work in us. As we see him and savor him, the Spirit of God works to change our lives, our perspectives, our attitudes, our values, our treasures. All of this is increasingly, slowly, glacially slowly at times, (laughs) causing us to resemble Jesus. We are being changed progressively. This is why it's called progressive sanctification transformed into the likeness of Christ. As we saw in Romans 7, none of us get there in this life. We always have indwelling sin. We will never fully arrive at Christ's likeness in this life. But the Bible says there's a day coming when that actually will happen. Here's 1 John uh, uh, 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be uh, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And that moment being referred to here is when Jesus returns and we are resurrected. And this body of decay and sin and inclination towards sin is is gone. And now we are glorified in a resurrected body. And from that point on and forever in the future, we will be little Jesus doppelgangers. We will be little Jesus juniors resembling the likeness of Christ. Forever we will be all about him and all like him. Final question. Why? Why does the Father purpose to conform his people into the likeness of his son? I mean, he could have said, I'm going to conform you into the likeness of Michael the archangel. I'm going to conform you into the likeness of Adam before the fall. But no, not that. He's conforming us into the likeness of his son. 
why does the God the Father purpose in eternity past to do this? And the simple answer is this. The Father loves the Son. Shouted over his baptism, this is my Son in whom I delight. Shouted at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my Son in whom I delight. The Father loves the Son. More than any human has ever loved their child, and yet what is true about human parents? I see a, 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 a human parent right here in the front row and a, and a cute baby. Yeah, I see that. She's, oh, precious, precious. What's true about human parents? We parents, it's like an addiction that you have to your kids. And I've got two. I've got a five-year-old and I've got a three-year-old. And on those occasions when we are able to get a babysitter and to go out and have a date night, I'm here to tell you, kids, I'm sorry, but it's fantastic. Like, <laughs> ditch the kids. You get in the car, and what do you hear? Nothing. There's nobody saying, where's my sippy? I got a pee-pee. Nothing. You just sit there and it's like, ah. Oh. And so my wife and I, we, we just savor that moment. There's no kids. We can go anywhere we want in the world. So we, you know, go to some fast food place and uh, we sit down and it's like, it's freedom. It's freedom for like 10 minutes because after about 10 minutes, what are we doing? We're looking at pictures of the kids on the phone. Oh, look, at! did you see this picture of her? And oh, don't they look cute here? And there we are, addicted to these kids, looking at their pictures. Parents love pictures of their kids. And God, the perfect parent, who loves us far more than any parent has ever loved, a human parent has loved a child, in eternity past, foreknew, began to think about us in terms of a saving, loving relationship, purpose through predestination, the salvation through Jesus that he would accomplish for all those that are his people, and planned by his divine loving purpose to establish a day in the future where there will be running all over heaven and on the new earth little Jesus juniors, little pictures of his son that he loves. Little doppelgangers of Jesus. And all of our lives, friends, and all of our trials, and all of our troubles, and all of the pains and the sorrows that you and I both have are all part and parcel of God shaping and forming and making us into the likeness of his son, and we will be that forever. That is our eternity. And for Christians, friends, there is no better news. Yeah. 